With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Technically, you argue that the courts are the last refuge of an institution which uh, can exclude information from people that, which are fragmented by too much of it. What I'd like to know is, um, in the wake of the O.J. Simpson case, do you still consider that to be the case? This question is about uh, uh, my uh, discussion in, in a different book called Technopoly about the courts, uh, where I use the example that a courtroom is a place which very carefully limits the kinds of information it will allow. And it's... Um, that's why lawyers jump up and say, I object to someone's talking about this. And then the judge decides whether that's permissible or not. And then uh, the questioner asked about the, uh, well, <laughs> about O.J. Simpson and the trial. Uh, by the way, did you read his most recent statement, his interview? He said, uh, I think it was in Vanity Fair, if I killed her, it would be it was because it would be because I loved her too much. Let's just slide over that one. Uh, in here's my view, very a personal view. Uh, of, in uh, if you go back about five years, New York State was uh, one of only about three or four states that. Um, uh, did not allow a television in the uh, courtroom. And uh, the New York State Legislature passed what's called a sunset law that is a law that uh, goes, that expires after a certain amount of time. In this case, 18 months. So for 18 months uh, in New York State, you could 
uh, uh, bring TV uh, uh, cameras into the courts, and the then governor, Mario Cuomo, set up a commission to study the effects of this. And I was appointed to that commission, and uh, we did study it, we did uh, interesting research. Uh, the, uh, the reason the legislature gave for allowing it was that they said Americans were insufficiently knowledgeable and respectful of our judicial system. If you allow the average person to see what goes on in the courtroom, their knowledge and their respect will increase. Here's an interesting sidebar on that. Of course, we found out after 18 months, no one knew anything more or had greater respect for the courts. In fact, respect had decreased. But people who were interviewed knew some interesting things. Like people would say, well, I know that lawyers are officers of the court. Say, hey, that's true. How did you know this? They would say, well, on law and order. Or, uh, or some, they'd mention some other television show. They say, oh, they mention that all the time. We did find out, of course, it's terrifying, that one out of every three people we interviewed, because this is New York State, I'm sure it's different in Michigan, but one out of every three who had been on a jury, that's important, one of every three who had served on a jury did not know that a person is to be considered innocent until proven guilty, which terrified us because on, certainly on any felony case, that's almost the first thing the judge would tell the jury. So, um, uh, but I was, I voted, in the end we voted, our commission, and we voted um, against uh, allowing uh, cameras in the courts, and, and then the, when the law expired, the legislature was fairly impressed with our arguments and said, well, we'll pass the law just for a, another year and we'll do more study. Then it expired, and then they said, oh, the hell with it. Let the cameras come in. So in New York State now, I'm sure it's true in Michigan, right? Can't you have cameras in the courts? Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, November 10th, 2017. So I have been told this is our final book club study session on Mr. Neil Postman's crazy talk, stupid talk, how we defeat ourselves by the way we talk and what to do about it all done. Uh, the book is not that long and we have made phenomenal time uh, as we've made our way through. Uh, really quickly, the audio clip that you heard, uh, that was from the late Neil Postman. He passed away in 2003, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, but that was a presentation that he gave in 1998. And so that was 22 years after the book that we're reading was published and three years 
after the O.J. Simpson trial where he was found not guilty for murder. 95, so this talk in 98. And you heard the question that he was asked. You were able to get the full context. The question that he was asked that prompted O.J. Simpson, because he was not talking about O.J. Simpson or anything else related to that, uh, and his full response and what he had to say, which I did think was interesting for a myriad of reasons, not just uh, the commentary on Mr. Simpson himself, uh, but then also what he said about uh, people not knowing about you are supposed to be innocent until proven guilty and the ramifications that that has for black people, since that would have to be a lot of white people, I guess, who have been on a jury and that is not their understanding or that's not how they think about this, that you are innocent until proven guilty. How many of those white people who gave that response that they didn't know that you had innocent until proven guilty? How many of them were on a jury where the defendant was a black person? Interesting. Anyway, I also wanted to make sure I clarified something quickly from last week. Uh, Our narrator, Mel, she's been doing a phenomenal job. We were on the chapter arguments. This is the second audio segment from last week. And the audio player uh, somehow stopped or there was a discontinuity where we missed like a page or two. I think like the last page or two from the arguments chapter. Uh, Mel did a professional outstanding job. The audio that she did, the narration was perfect. It was just the player, for whatever reason, hiccuped. uh, And this happened. I was trying to verify. We had, if folks recall from last week, Mr. Postman had that significant portion of the text where he was talking about propaganda and it focused on George Jackson. And we were talking about George Jackson and is this an act of white supremacy, how Postman has talked about Jackson in this section. And I was trying to verify a couple bits of information from the discussion that we had while I was checking, you know, to make sure the information on Mr. Jackson was correct. What we were saying, uh, that's when the audio, we had the discontinuity where we missed a page or two. It was definitely was some confusion for me because it was so abrupt. It caused me to kind of lose my page where I was uh, as I was listening to the narration, but the archive is pristine. It was not Mel's fault. Uh, Just the audio did not cooperate. Hopefully that will not be the case this week as we wrap things up. Uh, And again, we are picking up uh, the chapter inflation and mystification. That's where we'll pick up at this week. Uh, We are almost right at the end of the book. Uh, We'll go ahead and get started and wrap this one up to get the text again. Neil Postman, Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. Inflation and mystification. There are two semantic tendencies that are always present when human beings talk, each of which deserves some credit for diminishing the value and clarity of our semantic environments. Both of them are fiercely deplored by writers on the subject of language, who frequently give the impression that the English language itself will collapse unless something is done about them. I doubt it. The English language has been doing very nicely for about a thousand years, and it is a good guess that its future is in no imminent danger. Nonetheless, it is surely worthwhile to call these two tendencies to your attention. The first is usually called verbal inflation. The second, mystification. Verbal inflation occurs when people broaden the meaning of words to such an extent that it becomes difficult to know what, if anything, the word is supposed to denote. Consider, for example, the word racist. 
There was a time when the word mostly referred to a person holding specific attitudes toward black people, in particular that they are inferior to whites and that, therefore, it is best to keep the two races apart. In this sense, Prime Minister Sam Smith of Rhodesia is a racist. There was another, more general sense in which the word was applied, namely, to denote any attitude which proceeds from the assumption that races of any type differ in important ways and that some races are definitely superior to others. In this sense, Joseph Goebbels was a racist. However, somewhere during the past 20 years or so, the meanings given to this word began to expand rapidly. I distinctly recall hearing John Lindsay being called a racist to the applause of many people because after a New York City snowstorm, he had chosen to have the streets of Manhattan cleared, but not those of Queens. I have heard Yogi Berra called a racist because he used as a pinch hitter Ed Cranepool, a white man hitting point three forty seven at the time, instead of John Milner, a black man hitting point one ninety six at the time. I have been told that anyone opposed to school busing or welfare or the Equal Rights Amendment is a racist. I have heard Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Henry Kissinger, Richard Nixon, Albert Shanker, the entire editorial board of the New York Times, and the coaching staff of the Oakland Raiders called racists for reasons bearing no discernible connection with each other. What appears to have happened is that the word's meanings have been so stretched that it is hard to tell in what direction to look when the word is used. Racist has become such a snarl word, roughly synonymous with the sound ugh. In a similar way, the word super is in the process of being bloated into uselessness. There are people still living who remember when things came in small, regular, and large sizes. We were then introduced to a supersize, and then a large supersize, followed by an extra-large supersize. Presumably we can expect soon a super-extra-large supersize. I suppose diminishing the size of super, or even large for that matter, is not especially serious, but inflating the meaning of friend is a matter of some consequence. There was a time when a friend was someone you knew for a few years, someone with whom you had experienced some tough and good times, and someone you trusted. But nowadays, TV quiz show hosts, what does this do to host, will tell nervous contestants that they have millions of friends out there rooting for them. Chase Manhattan Bank is telling us that we have a friend in the loan department of every branch. Does a friend lend money at 12% interest? And for some people, anyone with whom they have shared a cup of coffee and a Danish qualifies as a friend. Verbal inflation can be a bothersome problem, depending on which words are getting the treatment. But, in general, it is not a process which will save irreparable damage to either the language itself or important semantic environments. In the first place, it has been going on for a thousand years. Words with precise meanings become words with general meanings become words with no meanings. But usually, if there is a need for some meaning which we once had but have lost, a new word is found to do the job, or perhaps the old word comes back. Carl Menninger recently asked, in the title of one of his books, What Became of Sin? I suspect, as I suggested much earlier, that as Americans became more secular in their way of thinking, they substituted un-American for sin. A fearful loss, in my opinion. But now, as our faith in political solutions to problems become increasingly unsteady, perhaps sin will return. In fact, on the day I wrote these words, there appeared an extraordinary remark in a column written by William Sapphire of the New York Times. 
In commenting on legislation designed to grant homosexuals equal protection under the law, Sapphire said that homosexual activity between consenting adults is not, or should not be, illegal. But he added, it is certainly a sin. For me, at least, the word came roaring off the page. A sin? A real, honest-to-goodness sin? These days, one does not often hear the word used in its theological sense, except perhaps by anti-abortionists. And perhaps the word is best left to pre-20th century eras. I do not argue for or against it here. I say only that if it is badly needed, it is available. The English language is marvelously adaptable. It can supply us with all the words we need in order to conduct our affairs. If we abuse some of our words, we are not, therefore, on the road to perdition. Another reason why verbal inflation is not necessarily disastrous is that, except in dictionaries, hard word lists, and various forms of school tests, words always come to our attention through the mouths and pens of particular people, in particular circumstances. We usually have a fairly good idea of how we are to construe a word from the context in which it is used. This means that there are as many different meanings of, say, friend, as there are circumstances which call forth the word, and most of us are quite capable of supplying an appropriate meaning to a word according to the circumstances of its use. We know, for example, that the Chase Manhattan Bank commercial does not mean by friend what we mean by it when we say, my friend Charlie is coming to town. And we know that I have a friend in the mayor's office means something else still, and that a TV personality referring to his millions of friends throughout America also has something else in mind. That is, most of us know this. In any case, though I think we can survive it, verbal inflation is obviously a tendency that bears careful watching. There is probably a limit, although I don't know where to place it, on just how much inflation our semantic environments can take before their integrity becomes compromised. The important idea about verbal inflation is that as it increases, distinctions become less accessible. A word not only suggests meanings, it excludes other meanings. The more meanings a word is allowed to suggest, the less usable it becomes for precision talking. If we cannot distinguish a friend from an acquaintance, a right from a privilege, a radical from a lunatic, a conservative from a fascist, etc., we are, of course, disarmed. Though it is also survivable, I think, we ought to be aware of our tendencies toward mystification. Mystification is a process whereby ideas or events which are perfectly understandable to almost anybody are talked about in such a way that they are inaccurate to all but a select group of people. Although some widely known individuals, such as William F. Buckley, frequently employ mystification as a style of writing and talking, the main offenders are practitioners of certain professions. All professions, G.B. Shaw once said, are conspiracies against the laity, and nowhere is this charge made more plausible than in the existence of mysterious technical vocabularies developed by professionals. Here, for example, is a sentence which I found in the Quarterly Journal of Speech, volume 61, April 1975, written by a man named Leonard C. Hawes, who is, of all things, attempting to develop a theory of communication. The sentence is, quote, The more familiar experimental approaches resting on a philosophical foundation of logical empiricism complement the less familiar ethno-methodological approaches resting on a philosophical foundation of phenomenology, unquote. 
A serious reader will suspect, of course, that Mr. Hawes is trying to hide something, or perhaps does not quite have a firm hold on what he wants to talk about. But a serious reader could be wrong. Believe it or not, one of the uses of a technical vocabulary is that it is a kind of shorthand. The terms logical empiricism and ethnomethodological do, in fact, have meanings. Not as precise meanings as the term of the equation E equals MC squared, but ones precise enough that those who are familiar with them can use them without going through elaborate explanations each time they do. What I mean to imply by this is that while technical terminology can be a problem, a source of confusion or deceit, it is not, in my opinion, a major one. To be sure, it is the easier aspect of a vocabulary to parody, and critics who lack character, such as myself, will not fail to do so. I will make amends to Mr. Hawes, therefore, by pointing out that, in using such terms, he is not necessarily indicating his confusion, only his exclusiveness. He means to tell us that he is not writing for our understanding, but only for those who dwell in his narrow realm. Having landed once or twice in that realm, I can tell you that it is as sterile as Mr. Hawes makes it sound, but it is no crime to be there. Such linguistic elitism can, however, have serious consequences in situations where it is necessary for the laity to know exactly what is going on. Here, for instance, is a description of a weekend workshop offered by the Esalen Institute, which is one of the major centers in the country for the development of altered states of stupidity. The workshop is called Tennis Flow, and it promises to, quote, integrate principles of body awareness, movement, dance, music, and meditation with traditional methods of tennis instruction and practice, unquote. So far as I can make any sense out of this piece of mystification, those who enroll in this workshop will be playing some tennis and getting a few tips on how to improve their game. The exorbitant fee one must pay for flowing all over the tennis court is made to seem plausible by a word salad of imposing proportions. Of course, we might say that anyone who wants to play tennis and feels the need to go to Esalen for it probably deserves this sort of treatment. But sometimes, people get this sort of treatment when they don't deserve it. Physicians, of course, are notoriously guilty of both mystifying and terrifying patients by using polysyllabic technical terms to denote commonplace and easily curable disorders. In fact, within the past few years, there has grown up a field known as iatrogenics. It is essentially the study of how doctor talk can intensify and even induce illness. Though the term itself is unnecessarily mysterious, the idea of having a field within a field to monitor the harmful consequences of verbal mystification is, in my opinion, a splendid one. And I would urge its replication in every field. Education, for example, is a field with which I am quite familiar, and I can assure anyone who is a member of the laity that there are very few terms employed by educators which cannot be expressed in everyday language and with admirable precision. Therefore, there ought to be a field within the field which is devoted to translating, decoding, or restating in plain language what educators are saying. If there were, educators would probably call it something like pedagantics, so that no one would know exactly what it was supposed to do. In any case, we ought not to undermine the consequences of mystification in medicine, education, or any other field. 
one of its principal effects is to make people feel stupid about and alienated from areas of human experiences which are exceedingly important to them. Another is to further the notion that if you can say a mysterious word, or a series of mysterious words, you necessarily know what you're talking about. I have previously said, and will stand by it, that the language of a subject is the subject, but there is a difference between saying technical words and understanding them. Goeth once remarked that, where understanding fails, a word comes to take its place, and that is as good a definition of stupid talk as I have ever heard. Part 3. Minding Your Minding Sometime in 1970, a man had himself admitted to a mental hospital. He assumed a false name and told the doctor who interviewed him a false story, that he heard strange voices that said empty, hollow, and thud. Upon being admitted to the hospital, he proceeded to tell the truth about himself, as best as he could and for as long as he was there, to everyone he came in contact with. Seven other people did the same thing in hospitals on the east and west coasts. All of this was part of a three-year experiment led by Dr. David L. Rosenham, a professor of psychology and law at Stanford University. Dr. Rosenham claims he was trying to find out if the sane can be distinguished from the insane in psychiatric hospitals. In an article which appeared in Science Magazine, he revealed that the pseudo-patients were not detected at any of the hospitals used in the experiment. Each pseudo-patient was discharged with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, in remission. The length of hospital confinement was ranging from 7 to 52 days, with an average of 19 days. Dr. Rosenhan concluded from all this that the methods of diagnosing insanity are not very reliable, and he put forth what appears to him the melancholy view that diagnoses are almost always influenced by the environment and context in which the psychiatrist examines the patient, i.e., the hospital setting predisposes the doctor to assume that a patient is mentally ill. Naturally, that is the equivalent of saying that if you enter a restaurant, sit down, and call for a menu, the waiter will be predisposed to assume that you want to eat. Nonetheless, research is research, and what Dr. Rosenhan seems to have discovered are two intertwined principles of human communication, which have long been known, and which are the basis of much of this book. The first is that the meaning of sentences are not in sentences, but in situations, in the relationship between what is said, and by whom, for what purposes, and in what set of circumstances. A psychiatrist sitting at the admissions desk of a mental hospital is told by a person who wishes to be admitted that he hears strange voices. What is the psychiatrist supposed to assume? And what are the doctors and nurses in the wards supposed to assume when they speak to the man the next day, or the next week? They will assume that there is something wrong with him, and that any statement he makes must be viewed in a different light from statements made by a man at a cocktail party or a baseball game. Which leads to the second idea Dr. Rosenham has stumbled upon. It is the ecological principle of non-additiveness. If you put a small drop of red ink into a breaker of clear water, you do not end up with a breaker of clear water plus a small drop of red ink. All of the water becomes colored. Telling a psychiatrist at a mental hospital that you hear strange voices works in exactly the same way. It changes the coloration of all subsequent statements you are likely to make. 
To take another example, a witness who has been caught in one lie to a jury will find it difficult to persuade them that any of his testimony is truthful. Communication, in other words, is not a matter of simple addition, one statement plus another plus another. Every statement we make is limited and controlled by the context established by previous statements. If, on Monday, you insist that you hear strange voices, your denial of this on Tuesday will merely have the effect of confirming that there is something wrong with you. All things considered, the pseudo-patients in Dr. Rosenhan's experiment did pretty well to be released after an average confinement of 19 days. But there is still another principle of human communication in this experiment, which, to this day, Dr. Rosenhan has perhaps failed to uncover. It is the idea that whatever you think is going on in any situation depends on how you frame or label the event, that is, where you stand in relation to it. For example, Dr. Rosenhan believes that his pseudo-patients are sane because, one, they did not, in fact, hear any strange voices, and two, they claim they did only as part of an experiment. But from another and wider angle, the pseudo-patients can be judged to be, if not insane, then at least very curious people. Why, for example, would a normal person deliberately have himself committed to a mental hospital? How many people do you know would even contemplate such an act? And if you knew someone who actually went through with it, you might think that a mental hospital is where he belongs, with or without strange voices. But Dr. Rosenhan and his co-conspirators have legitimized the act, have sanitized it, if you will, by calling it an experiment. To them, an experiment is a semantic environment of unimpeachable legitimacy, which is to say, experimenters do not need to explain their behavior. Not only that, but Dr. Rosenhan wrote an article about his experiment, which got published in a prestigious scientific journal. And so, Dr. Rosenhan, his pseudo-patients, and the editors of Science Magazine think they are all quite sane, that patients who do hear voices are insane, and that the doctors who label the experimenters schizophrenic are unreliable. I do not say that they are wrong, but it is just as reasonable to suppose that Dr. Rosenhan and his pseudo-patients are strange and unreliable people themselves, and that the doctors in the mental hospitals were entirely competent and judicious. What Science Magazine should have done is published two articles, one by Dr. Rosenhan about his experiment, and another, from a broader perspective, about people who do such experiments and the various labels which might be used to evaluate their behavior. The first article would probably come under the heading of psychology, which Dr. Rosenhan is a professor of. The second would come under the heading of meta-semantics. And it is to meta-semantics that I would like to call your attention in this final chapter, for it is the term under which I should like to encapsulate everything in this book. Meta-semantics is the discipline through which we may make our minds behave themselves. It is the best way I know to regulate and minimize the flow of our own stupid and crazy talk, and to make ourselves less accessible to the stupid and crazy talk of others. The fundamental strategy of meta-semantics is to put ourselves, psychologically, outside the context of any semantic environment, so that we may see it in its entirety, or at least from multiple perspectives. From this position, or a variety of positions, it is possible to assess the meaning and quality of talk in relation to the totality of the environment in which it occurs, and with a relatively high degree of detachment. We become less interested in participating in semantic environments, more interested in observing them. The move from a participant 
to a participant observer position is almost always accompanied by a lessening of fervor, a suspicion of ideology, a willing suspension of belief, and a heightening of interest in the process of communication. For, by declining the temptation to attend solely to what people are saying, we may focus... We may focus our attention on the relationships of the what to the whys and hows. Every remark we hear or make is then transformed into a question or a series of questions about its purpose, its tone, its assumptions, its metaphorical structure, its grammatical biases, its conformity to the rules of discourse. Talking or listening to talk changes its character from a limited reflexive response to a wide-ranging act of inquiry. And inquiry is, and always has been, the most durable and effective antagonist of unwise speech. But one's will to conduct such inquiries is not summoned easily. Few of us have ever received much encouragement to reflect on the character of the semantic environments we are in. As children, we are educated to respond to what is being said to us, not to why and how. Any questions we might be tempted to ask about tone or role structure or the purposes of a situation are usually disdained in the home, in school, in church, in the army, in most places. Whatever natural inclinations we might have toward trying to understand communication as a whole are dealt with as impertinences, even as threats. We learn soon enough to think fast, not reflectively. The best metaphor I know for this state of affairs is the school examination. Can you imagine a student, upon being handed a test, expressing a desire to discuss the purposes of the test, the assumptions about people and learning on which it is based, the metaphors of the mind which are implicit in the form of the test, or the silent questions to which the ideas of a test is the answer? The scene is close to unimaginable. But surely the teacher would insist that the student get on with it and fast. We want people to do what they are supposed to do, say what they are supposed to say, and think, if at all, strictly in the channels assigned to the matter. The rush to do and say, as well as fixed channel thinking, are the essentials, the catalysts of almost all stupid and crazy talk. Yet the pressures toward them are very good indeed. I suspect that behind it all is the fear that an excess of awareness will jeopardize the stability and continuity of a situation, and thereby destroy it. But this fear, in my opinion, is not well founded. Consider the case of two people attending a church service. The first knows what she is supposed to do and say, but has little awareness of how her behavior is being managed. The second also knows what she is supposed to do and say, but at the same time knows about how the environment has been designed and is fully aware of its multi-leveled purposes. She knows about identification reactions and reification and role structures and fanaticism and all the rest. Will the meaning of the event be the same for both of them? I doubt it, but this does not mean that the second woman will refuse to participate in the event. Knowing that the semantic environment of religion may provide her with a sense of transcendence and her community with a sense of social cohesion, she may be quite willing to do and say exactly what is required of her. But her actions would rest on a foundation of awareness, which permits her to be in control of her responses in a way that is not available to the other. The key idea, then, in metasemantics is awareness, not cynicism or rejection, to be aware of what is going on in church, in school, in the army, in a sports arena, in a courtroom, in an office, in a laboratory, does not imply that you will refuse to do and say what you are supposed to do. 
In fact, the greater one's awareness of the purposes and structures of different semantic environments, the greater is one's sensitivity to the precariousness of all social order, that is, of all communication. To discover that what keeps us together is nothing more substantial than a curious set of symbols and a delicate system of rules is more likely to lead one to humility and conservatism than to iconoclasm and rebelliousness. Shaw's widely known observation that those who worship symbols and those who desecrate them are both idolaters captures the sense of what I am trying to say. The man who genuflects without knowing why and the man who spits on the altar both suffer from a lack of control. They are victims of a mode of discourse. What we want are not victims, but critics, and criticism can be done inside the church as well as out. However, I am not prepared to argue that awareness of how semantic environments do their work will lead in one direction or another. Among those who have such knowledge, we will find a wide range of attitudes, including reverence, indifference, and skepticism. The point of a metasemantic view of situations is that it frees us from both ritualistic compliance and reflexive rejection. Once free, we may re-enter the situation, or refuse to re-enter it, from an entirely different point of view, and with a heightened degree of control. Although Dr. Skinner denies it, there can be important differences in levels of consciousness between two people who are doing exactly the same thing. One of them may have the potential to offer reasoned criticism, to modify his own behavior, to resist frivolous change, and to encourage judicious change, or even to retreat from the environment altogether in an orderly fashion. The other may be completely dominated by the environment and have no options, and in that difference lies all the difference. For what distinguishes us from other species is not that we can say yes or no, which a dog or a crocodile can do as well, but that we can say yes while reserving the options to say no, or vice versa. The distinctively human capability is the provisional response, the critical response, the rational response, the delayed response, the self-conscious response, the meta-semantic response. And so... Positioning ourselves psychologically to inquire into the structure of a semantic environment is a necessary condition to our gaining control over our minding processes, but it is not sufficient. There are two more conditions to be satisfied, and one of them requires that we have some specific questions, an instrument, if you will, with which to make our inquiries. If I have done this book right, most of its previous pages contain explanations of what such questions are. But, by way of summary, I have listed below a series of questions which would provide a basis for such inquiries. What is the general area of discourse I am in? Is the language of law, science, commerce, religion, romance, education, social lubrication, politics, patriotism, entertainment? Is there ambiguity or confusion over what sort of situation this is? How has such confusion been treated? What are the avowed or hypothetical purposes of this environment? To satisfy the need for knowledge, for spiritual uplift, for love, for economic security, for social cohesion, for freedom, for protection, for aesthetic pleasure? What are the purposes that are actually being achieved by the way this environment is organized? Is there a correspondence between the avowed and actual purposes? Are there contradictions in purpose between the environment and its subsystems? Are there conflicts between the purposes, either hypothetical or actual, of the situation and the needs of individuals within that situation? Who are the people performing within the situation? 
How well do they know its rules? How well do they know its language? What are the general characteristics of the atmosphere of this environment? How are these characteristics made visible? What attitudes are required? And of whom? What is the role structure of the environment? Is it fixed or fluid? What are the possibilities of changing the atmosphere? What are the technical terms used in this environment? What are its key terms, including its basic metaphors? Who is controlling the metaphors? Who or what is in charge of maintaining the definitions? To what extent is the language here characterized by fanaticism, Eichmannism, argument, the IFD disease, bypassing, propaganda, self-reflexiveness, sloganeering, verbal inflation, mystification, euphemism, reification, systemophilia, confused levels of abstraction, signal reactions, self-fulfilling prophecies, hidden questions, incompatible metaphors, fixed definitions. What are the effects of any of these problems? Do they compromise the integrity of the environment? Confuse or otherwise change its purposes? Do they change the atmosphere? Do they change the role structure? What attitudes do they promote? Obviously, these are not all questions that can be asked, and it would not surprise me if I have omitted several important ones. Moreover, these questions are not intended to be asked sequentially. One may begin almost anywhere and will discover that any single question will call forth eventually all the others. The order of the questions will depend on the purpose and priorities of the questioner. It is also important to say in most cases that the questions are extremely difficult to answer. In some instances, it is virtually certain that there will be disagreement, even among people who have no great emotional stake in the environment they are analyzing. This is especially true, as I have noted earlier, in the matter of purposes. To me, for example, it seems clear that there is a distinct similarity in the actual purposes, as opposed to the avowed purposes, of such situations as the celebrations of the Reverend Moon's Unification Church, a convention of Democratic or Republican governors, and an annual congregation of the Star Trek faithful. To you, the similarity may appear strained or even non-existent. The point is not to achieve consensus on our answers, but on our questions. Metasemantic analysis must disappoint you if you are looking for a clean, objective assessment of any situation. In the first place, human transactions are so ambiguous and complex, so fixed with contradiction and mystery, that it is never possible to say exactly and fully what a situation means. In the second place, the observer must always take into account his or her own disposition. You examine something for a reason, and what your reason is will dictate what you will see and therefore say. We see things not as they are, but as we are. Even in physics, this principle is accepted. In the subject of human behavior, it holds with even greater force. And so anything you say about a situation must be modified by the answers to the questions, why am I doing this? What are my own prejudices? How prepared am I to understand what is happening? In short, we have in the metasemantic questions neither a catechism nor an exact science but a kind of multi-pointed compass which directs where we shall look, but not what we shall see. Assuming, then, that this list of questions is a reasonably useful guide to inquiry, the metasemantic view would require still another, final step if it is to help us gain control over our minding processes, namely, the making of judgments about what people, including ourselves, are saying. And here we enter the inescapable realm of values. 
In exploring that realm, I want to begin by restating the ways in which I have defined stupid and crazy talk. I have said, first of all, that both stupid and crazy talk are evaluations made by particular people. This may be obvious enough, but to keep well clear of reification, I want to stress one more time that stupidity and craziness are not in the sentences we speak or hear, or even in situations. They are judgments one makes about the relationship of talk to the totality of the situation within which the talking occurs. This implies that the justification for any judgment rests ultimately on the judge's conception of what is workable or what is desirable. And in these two terms, workable and desirable, we have the basis of the distinction I have tried to make between stupid and crazy talk. It is, I believe, a distinction worth making since their consequences for the maintenance of healthy semantic environments are quite different, and therefore we are required to deal differently with them. Stupid talk, I have argued, is talk that does not do what it is supposed to do, according to you. It is talk, according to you, that misconstrues the atmosphere of a semantic environment or is not aware of its motivating questions or projects metaphors that are incompatible with those of others in a situation or misinterprets a role structure or, through self-reflexiveness, goes far beyond any reasonable chance of clarifying an issue. Stupid talk is talk whose purpose is legitimate, according to you, but whose character is not. Its fault is that it does not work or cannot work. Moreover, stupid talk tends to be an individual aberration. It is, so to speak, a mistake one makes in the give and take of talking. It may even be a mistake one makes repeatedly, but it is usually not the sort of thing one wants to do, and that is why stupid talk is frequently fairly easy to correct. If the corrector and the correctee, who may be the same person, share roughly the same understanding of the purposes of a semantic environment, they are likely to have an amiable meeting of minds. It is as if someone wants to drive from New York to Chicago in the fastest possible way, and to accomplish this end, has arranged to drive through New Orleans. Assuming that you and he can agree on what fastest possible way means, what Chicago means, and that Chicago is a desirable place to go, your efforts to improve his performance ought to be well received. Of course, if you do not agree on these things, you have another kind of problem, which we will come to presently. But what I am trying to say here is that stupid talk tends to be an individual pragmatic issue. The question it involves is whether or not what has been said will achieve its purposes within the framework of a generally accepted semantic environment. I do not, incidentally, wish to imply that the question of workability is always an easy matter to decide. Reasonable people will often differ on whether or not something has worked, or, if agreeing on that, will disagree on why. But observations of actual efforts will frequently lead the way out of such dilemmas. After all, talking is a hypothesis, a prediction, an experiment, and therefore, to some extent, its success or failure can be verified. If I wish to sell you a car, I will try to do it by a certain kind of talk. If you do not buy, and if enough others do not buy, I have a basis for assuming that my talk is implicated in my defeats. Stupid talk, in other words, is an individual's failed experiment. The experiment may have involved an attempt to sell a car, to amuse, to discover a fact, to create a sense of reverence, or to help someone see something more clearly. But in most cases, these are effects to be observed, and we may find enlightenment by rigorously attending to them. Unless, of course, we are enraged or feeling especially vulnerable. 
or unless certain habits of speech have become so lovable, so deeply ingratiating to our personalities, that rather than changing them, we would choose to live with ambiguity, confusion, and ineffectiveness. All of us in some measure are so afflicted. We are stupid talk junkies, at least so far as one or two semantic environments are concerned. I know people whose ability to use the language of commerce is comprehensive and acute. They know virtually everything about it, its purposes, tone, roles, metaphors, technical terms. Nothing escapes their notice, especially unanticipated consequences. And yet, as they move from business situations to, say, politics or religion, their understanding diminishes in quantum leaps. They do not know what they are saying or what others are saying to them. They do not even know what is expected of them. But curiously, they do not seek improvement. They enjoy their stupid talk, as we all do in one situation or another. I know of no remedy for the enjoyment of stupid talk, except to wait until the observable effects of such talk become an intolerable burden. In which case, it may be too late. Our stupid talk may have become transmuted into crazy talk. Crazy talk is almost always endearing to those who use it, and observations of its effects will on no account influence its direction. Crazy talk occurs when we do not agree on where Chicago is, or especially on whether or not we should go there altogether. The question of the effectiveness of crazy talk is not relevant. Crazy talk may or may not work. Its fault is that, from your point of view, its purposes, definitions, tone, and metaphors are loathsome or destructive or evil, or even overwhelmingly trivial. As a consequence, there is no way of which I am aware that you can prove, demonstrate, or even explain to another that he is talking crazy. For example, consider Yasir Arafat's observation that the Palestine Liberation Organization does not want to destroy any people. It is precisely because we have been advocating coexistence that we have shed so much blood. Here, we are not dealing with an aberrant, improvable remark. We are confronted by an aberrant pattern of thought of a type that frequently takes possession of men who have been in war too long, as must have also been the case of the U.S. officer in Vietnam who said that, quote, we destroyed the town in order to save it, unquote. In fact, Arafat's enemy, Moshe Dayan, who has also been in the war too long, gave an entirely new meaning to both the Western and Eastern conceptions of logic in commenting on the shooting down of a Libyan airliner. He said that, technically speaking, Israeli planes did not shoot it down, but merely knocked off one of its wings. Judges of the world should take note, for here is an entirely new line of defense against any charge of homicide. One may argue that Arafat and Dayan are speaking this way only to reduce hostile political opinion toward their respective causes, but that they would choose such language in order to achieve this reflects a conception of political discourse that is entirely deformed, according to me, and if it does not appear so to many others, that is exactly the point I am leading to. Crazy talk is not, by and large, an individual departure from reason. It reflects a collective point of view. It is talk for which there is a large and favorable audience. It puts forward a conception of purpose and tone and value that is embodied in a philosophy or a movement or an ideology. In an earlier chapter, I quoted from the terse speech given by Nazi guards to the newly arrived inmates at a concentration camp. Their remarks were designed to reduce the chances of rebellion among the inmates, and as far as I know, were effective in doing so. Hardly stupid talk. But the basic purpose of the concentration camp was to kill people, and for no other reason than that they were of a different race from the killers. 
there were many people to whom that made perfectly good sense, as there are many people today to whom killing for peace makes good sense. To me, this is crazy talk. If someone else does not agree, he and I are at an impasse. We have reached the final frontier of semantic analysis. There is nothing left to say except that I believe this and you believe that. Therefore, the metasemantic view requires that the judgment of crazy talk be placed in a fairly clear value context. It cannot be cloaked as science or scholarship or even informed opinion. To say that something is crazy talk is to impugn someone's concept of reality, to challenge his values, to deny the legitimacy of his purposes. In doing so, we are using the language of religion in its purest sense. We assert what is desirable, but we cannot prove it. Therefore, I wish to reiterate some of the most important values on which I base my judgments of crazy talk. These, as well as several others, have no doubt already made themselves visible to you throughout the book, especially in the examples I have provided, but it is an essential part of the metasemantic view that the judge use every means available, including redundancy and generalities, as well as examples, to make known the preferences on which his judgments are based. I begin, then, by noting that in the questions I have put forward as instruments of inquiry, there are several implicit values. Foremost among these is the value of inquiry itself. I take it as a given that any talk which actively tries to discourage inquiry about itself is crazy talk. For example, I was recently sent a piece of advertising for the group known as EST, to which I have previously alluded. The advertisement explains, in question and answer form, the ways of knowing promoted by EST. One of the questions is, will I have to take notes or study anything? The answer is as follows. No. Est is an experience. There is nothing to study, nothing to remember, nothing to figure out. This kind of talk strikes me, on the face of it, as crazy. I have long assumed that what is most worthwhile about our species is that we can study, remember, and figure out better than all the others, with the possible exception of the humpback whale. To refrain from exercising this talent, therefore, appears to me to diminish our humanity, and any system of speech which encourages us to be less human is crazy talk. I do, however, acknowledge, as I have stated several times earlier, that there are a few well-established semantic environments, lovemaking, for example, where an excess of inquiry behavior can be ruinous to an understanding and appreciation of the event. But even there, one may think before the event and after the event, and thereby predict and evaluate its consequences to one's life. There are lovers, and then there are rapists. And the difference lies in how one studies, remembers, and figures out the encounter. From all this, you will understand that I am placing the highest possible worth on the process by which people come to their conclusions. It has lately been claimed that of the two hemispheres of the brain— the one on the left is largely in control of our capacity to analyze, to employ logic, and to apply principles, indeed to use language itself. Semantic environments which are designed to suppress or bypass the functions of the left hemisphere of the brain, even if they are disguised as therapies, are therefore highly suspect, in my scheme of things, and are likely to produce large quantities of crazy talk. You may have also gathered from what has gone on before that I place high value on social order and its four pillars, empathy, tradition, responsibility, and civility. I realize that these words are extremely abstract and therefore not easy to define. I am using them here to suggest the socially conservative idea that there is something worth preserving in most semantic environments, 
What I have been calling semantic environments are, after all, situations shaped by a long human experience, and their purposes and language are on no account to be taken lightly or to be revised precipitately. Those who are quickest to call for a reordering of some social system, including its language, are usually those who are most insensible to how much they, themselves, depend on conventional rules and roles. Nothing could be more ridiculous, for example, than a person who accuses the police of brutality, calls for a people's army to replace them, and then is astonished at being smacked by a policeman's billy club. We are bound together by thousands of unwritten contracts, without which we would lose our entire basis of predictable continuity in life, and there is a certain craziness in any talk that places such continuity in jeopardy. In a fundamental sense, there may be nothing crazier than the philosophy which advocates doing your own thing. For in the sense in which it is sometimes meant, the phrase implies a releasing of oneself from social contracts, including semantic restraints and rules. But again, those who are most passionate about doing their own thing do not normally expect a bus driver to do his own thing, which may be to take the Third Avenue bus to Tenafly, New Jersey, to visit his girlfriend. And so, there are forms of crazy talk, according to me, which consistently come from systemophiles, utopians, and revolutionaries, people who do not sufficiently appreciate the delicate ecological balance by which semantic environments maintain their usefulness. You might call such people the book burners, no matter what their philosophy. They are driven by the desire to erase tradition, to unburden us, all at once, of the weight of human experience. But book burning is not a form of literary criticism. It is not a form of criticism at all. It is a form of crazy talk. On the other hand, nothing could be more obvious than that our semantic environments are in need of modification. Therefore, the fanatics and Eichmanns among us will provide a constant source of crazy talk, defending the indefensible, never questioning purposes, and thereby refusing to allow for change. They are the mirror images of the book burners. Because neither appreciates the need for continuity, the book burners disdain what is past, the Eichmanns what is ahead. Fearing all modifications of purpose, tone, metaphor, and role that keep a semantic environment responsive to human needs. In summary, I am saying that crazy talk is characterized by patterns of thought which reveal an unwillingness to inquire, an exorbitant disdain for tradition, and a paralyzing fear of change. To these, I must add the following two ideas, values. First, that crazy talk is extremely likely to emerge when there is a failure to differentiate carefully among semantic environments. As Karl Crofts long ago remarked, there is a difference between a chamber pot and an urn. And one might say that crazy talk is a consequence of not knowing the difference, as when, for example, the language of athletic competition is confused with the language of patriotism. My sense of a country's worth is not enlarged because an American rowing crew beats some Peruvians in the Olympics, nor is it diminished if the Peruvians win. Talk to the contrary strikes me as crazy. To take another example, when I vote for a presidential candidate, I do not assume that this is what God wanted me and everyone else to do, and those who assume so are, according to me, talking crazy. I do not look to astrology to provide me with a basis for predicting the future, and I do not look to science to tell me where my loyalty should lie. I do not believe that schools ought to be political organizations, and I do not believe that political organizations should function as advertising agencies. People who talk as if their religions were a political party, and as if commerce were a religion, 
marriage a court of law, a court of law a sporting event, a sporting event a form of patriotism, patriotism a form of family life, usually project a vision of reality that I find crazy. If an individual or a society cannot distinguish between the uses of a chamber pot and the uses of an urn, then neither will have any clear conceptions of how to behave. Finally, I must avow my belief that the best defense against all varieties of crazy talk is our old friend a sense of humor, which is always available as an escort through hard and confusing times. I mean by a sense of humor an active appreciation of the fact that Time's winged chariot is always at our backs, and that, therefore, there is a profound and essential foolishness, transiency, and ineptitude to all our adventures, including the hardest of all, talking to each other. Without a sense of humor, almost any talk will, soon or late, descend into craziness, brought down by its own unrelieved gravity. I believe that a sense of humor is at the core of all our humane impulses, and he who would make us mad must first exorcise our appreciation of human frailty, which is what a sense of humor is. A person with a sense of humor will not say, unless with irony, that we can kill for peace, or that break-in men are guilty of an excess of zeal, or that you are perfect the way you are, which is what Voltaire said in Candide, laughing all the way. A person with a sense of humor will not say that a marriage contract should specify when the dishes are to be done and by whom, or that God wants us to show the world that Americans can compete with the Russians. A person with a sense of humor will not shout Sig Heil or seriously believe that any idea is infallible. And a person with a sense of humor will hardly try to sell you a car by persuading you that, in buying it, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so it comes down to this. The management of our minding is a Sisyphean task. We can never finish doing it. We can only keep pushing the rock, armed with what William James called the feeblest force in nature, our capacity to reason. The temptations to subvert that capacity are attractive and persuasive. Everywhere, it seems, we are advised to relax, to empty our minds of thought, to be spontaneous, to avoid being uptight, and to believe the unbelievable. This is the age, I am told, of transcendental meditation. I rather think it is the moment, not the age. At least I hope so. For each day, the devils of crazy and stupid talk awake when we do, eager to mismanage our affairs. Their only antagonist is reason, and they will give way to rational meditation and no other. Context of White Supremacy There is an autobibliography where <clears throat> Mr. Postman provides, it's like three pages basically, five pages five pages where he gives suggestions. He gives like nine books that he suggests that will help with this journey to mind our minds. Uh, I might <clears throat> read those five or Mel might read those five before we conclude. I was thinking about that. I guess we were both thinking about that. Like, should we include the autobiography? Like, is that part of the actual text? It's just five pages. Anyway, uh, we are pretty much done, with the exception of those five. That is Neil Postman's Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk, How We Defeat Ourselves by the Way We Talk and What to Do About It. Man, thoroughly enjoyed the book. Wowie. Wowie. I read back-to-back. Uh, -back. This was the second book that I read. I read Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is wildly popular 
Uh, they have audiobooks of that one. It's been reprinted. I think that is his most popular book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I read that book. It's interesting. I don't think – I think this book is more uh, enjoyable for our purposes, although if, you know, you enjoy this or what have you, you might want to check that out too. That book is very good as well. The basic premise is that uh, people – uh, just exactly as the title says, uh, you have less thinking. A big premise of the uh, big point of the book is that as technology has improved and uh, amusing ourselves to death was written before you even had internet and everything the way that you do now. So I mean, woo! Uh, but the basic premise being that uh, before all of that, you had a written-based uh, society where people <clears throat> to get their information for politics, commercials everything or the bulk of what people did was through reading and that if you're getting your information through reading, reading demands logic. Reading demands context. You cannot just say anything and move from sentence to sentence. It has to make sense uh, regardless of whether you're writing a prescription, you're trying to, to write an advertisement for a car wedding invitations, whatever it is, if it's written, it's got to make sense. Whereas once you moved to television, images, totally different. Uh, context does not have to be there. You can just throw anything up. Uh, and he gives lots of examples. Uh, you can advertise a car. I mean, now think about the commercials that you see now. You might see a car in a tree. Anything. <laughs> like they could just, you could do anything. With images, images do not demand context. And he basically said that you just had uh, a substitution of people thinking and using logic and reasoning to process information to just amusement. Everything is about amusement. Uh, he goes through the book that teaching is about amusement. He talks about Sesame Street, how people think that Sesame Street is great because it, it teaches children to learn. And he said that that is not true. Sesame, uh, Sesame Street just encourages more television watching. Uh, and that if there is going to be something educational, it had better be entertaining. Uh, and if it's not, we're not going to pay attention to it. And in fact, a whole lot of people uh, referenced Neil Postman when Donald Trump won because he predicted that sort of thing. He was talking about Ronald Reagan being president. He was a big actor that you were going to probably have more of that. People cited Donald Trump and all the reality TV show stuff that he did and that he had a whole legion of fans uh, because of that. But that's the basic premise of amusing ourselves to death, where he also talks a lot about context. Both of these books talk a lot about context. I can only repeat again, I read this, this book, both of these books in 2007. The Cows came into existence months later, and both of these books talk a lot about context, the importance of context, and how confusion, you end up with confusion once context begins to be eroded, where you can't really make sense, you can't really process and connect ideas to get a greater understanding of what is happening, why is this thing happening, all the questions that he had at the end. Once you start to take away context, you begin to remove understanding. Context of white supremacy. Uh, folks have comments they would like to share, the number is 641-715-3640, the code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six 
star six one, sorry, if you would like to participate, if you want to join in but you do not want to dial in on your phone, you can use the free VOPE line. It is connected at linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. When you enter that address, click the link on the left. It says free vote line. It will open a small window on your screen. Top line is a drop-down menu. Select the number I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. Next line, it will ask for the code. That code again, 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can use a real name, nickname, press random keys. Once you get all that information entered, Click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the broadcast. You should be able to hear us live. If you would like to participate, same procedure. You will see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six one, and we'll see your we will see your hand on the switchboard, and invite you on the line. Uh, that's it, folks uh, who dialed in. If you have commentary you would like to share, uh, we're wrapping up the book, so it would be final comments. I think we'll try to get the uh, bibliography and what have you, but final comments thoughts, observations uh, from the text. Uh, folks thought this had any constructive uh, tidbits that you can use in terms of uh, conversation, importance of words moving forward would be great. Uh, if you just thought Mr. Postman was practicing racism, that would be good to hear as well. Uh, Mr. Demery Four should be with us. I'll nab other hands as I see them. <clears throat> yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, first, I'd like to say that I think the book was constructive. Uh, I learned quite a bit from it. It's thought-provoking. And this particular reading uh, was uh, humorous to me for some reason, especially the part about the uh, experiment with the mental patients. But I'll start out uh, <clears throat> with inflation and mystification. Um, examples of verbal inflation, uh, meaning that uh, words, meanings are broadened to the extent that it becomes difficult to know what the word, if any, is supposed to uh, denote. And then it may have been an act of racism that he used racist as the first word of this example. Uh, so, well, I recognized uh, instances where he would use uh, metaphors that, in my opinion, that didn't fit. But uh, the racism, well, the word racist. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's constructive to name call, but then the fact that he used the word racist, um, from my, and Gus, you can correct me if I'm uh, off base here, but I don't think that uh, other than the white person 
admitting that they are racist, that we have any real way to verify a racist or not uh, from his uh, behavior or from some of his actions, you know, we might come to a conclusion that he's practicing racism. But other than the fact um, I uh, subscribe to the belief that they are suspected racists until uh, verification by admission. And whites are very clever in their use of words to deceive and to confuse non-white people to continue in a confused state. So uh, taking a word like racist and saying that it has been stretched and that it's hard to tell in what direction to look when the word is used. That sounds like some a racist might say. <laughs> All these examples that he used of people that he had heard being called racist, to my uh, recollection, um, <laughs> you know, contrary to what I just said, I think they would qualify as racist. Because, uh, you know, the little instances that he gave, you know, were probably pale in comparison to what these people really did to um, get the uh, designation as a racist. And then who is it that's calling these people racist? Because it will be hard-pressed to think that he would include in the book what black Americans felt about Yogi Berra calling him a racist because he he didn't put a certain person in. Uh, You know, if if Yogi Berra was the manager of, I'd say, the Yankees or whatever, during the time period that, you know, this book was written, we all know that racism was rampant, you know, in Major League Baseball. So he was just part of it and all the rest of these examples. And then he goes, I think, to conflation because uh, when you, how are you comparing uh, the word large and super, large super size and then super extra large? I don't see how that, well, I see the point that he's making. Because, but I don't see how, if you rename uh, a measurement, say now they are 1X, 2X, 3X, they're large, super large, 1X, 2X, 3X, you know, so it's even changed now, but how does that diminish uh, super or large? They're just a larger, uh, uh, larger scale, larger measurement. Then his, uh, he started to talk about uh, friend and what it means to say. I mean, we can, we can understand what he's saying here, and the word is probably used loosely. But like you said, most importantly, it's the context in which it's used. Because if it's a game show host and he's talking about his friends, basically he's you know, talking about his fans or people that's watching the show a guy that's a friend at the bank. It's 
not your friend if he's charging you uh, interest on your money. But and then I think uh, to further make the point, it's not what he's saying. You can't get mixed up with with uh, what he's saying and not get the point that he's trying to make. Because when he he starts to bring in homosexuality, you know, when he was talking about sin, and in a way, uh, he's a very clever writer. And so I would be willing to guess that at this particular time, the LB, uh, uh, GT, whatever, you know, they wasn't, uh, they didn't have any rights. I mean, as far as uh, homosexuality probably was, you know, this probably was a terrible thing during that time. I mean, I, I was during that time, but I was young and, I didn't know any people that, even if they were gay, they wasn't saying they were gay during that time. But, and then uh, wrapping it up, uh, when he started talking about mining, you know, mining, um, I guess gaining control over your mining process. If you would uh, stay in the inquiry, like asking yourself questions, you know, uh, is this environment something that is constructive? Uh, what is my response to certain things? This and that, just thinking about it, you know, you will uh, no doubt uh, conduct yourself a lot better than just uh, not thinking about that situation, the context the contacts you're in and what you're going to say. Um, it's a little part he wrote here. uh says the key idea then in metasemetics is awareness, not uh, cynicism or rejection. If you're aware of what is going on in the church, school, and army, and sports arenas, in the courtroom, in the office, laboratories, does not imply that you will refuse to do or say what you are supposed to. In fact, the greater one, awareness of the purposes and structures of different semantic environments, the greater is one's sensitivity to the precariousness of all social order, that is, of all communication. To discover that what keeps us together is nothing more substantial than a curious set of symbols and a delicate system of rules is more likely to lead to humility and conservatism than to uh, what is that? Uh, Iconicism and rebellion. And it's using that word there, iconicism uh, is interesting, you know, because in now uh, with the uh, statues of uh, Confederate, uh, so-called those, uh, uh, well, I'd say, you know, just flat-out racist in front of all our important structures and buildings and all over the place, and now people are just uh, tearing them down and it's legislation to have them removed. 
but he's just uh he's very clever writer and uh I'm enjoying it. Uh uh this last part is the distinctive human capacity is the provisional response, the critical response, the rational response, the delayed response, and the metasemantic response. I think that all that's very important. Um, I don't think that all whites go through this process because if it did, we wouldn't have a bunch of this, uh, what I call gibberish and googly gobble. I'll mute my line, Gus, uh, if somebody else a chance. Thanks for taking the call. Appreciate that, Mr. Demry, for gibberish. Google got. Mm. Uh, let's see. Our narrator, Mel, extraordinary job uh, reading the text and getting done promptly, uh, wrapping up in five weeks, really four and a half weeks, because we don't even have part two technically. Uh, Mel should be with us and the caller 5771. If you all had uh, commentary, your line should be open as well. Did either of you all have commentary, or maybe they're just listening in? Oh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I was waiting for Mel if she wanted to go first, but I guess uh, I guess I'll go first. Uh, just real quickly, uh, as uh, Mr. Demery Four had touched on in regards to uh, his use of the term racist, uh, and just like with Mr. Demery Four, uh, I suspect that. Uh, Mr. Postman is a suspected racist uh, by his use of the term racist. But what was interesting was he used racist but not racism. So um, I've, all, I've always been suspicious of any, any, any white person who uses racist uh, uh, not, and not along with racism. So um, when I read that, I was looking for that term racism but couldn't find it, couldn't see it. Uh, and also, too, when he, you know, um, in using that term, he doesn't clearly, def- I mean, he, he defines racist as some sort of prejudice or belief. But, you know, I, I'm, you know, we, I guess his terminology or his definition, uh, I, I guess that's not the, the point of it. But still, though, it, it, it does seem like an act of racism when he, when he uses that as an example. And... In the other chap, in his last chapter, uh, he has something where he says, "There are lovers and there are rapists, and the difference lies in how one studies, remembers, and figures out the encounter." Well, in the system of white supremacy, uh, an encounter, a, a, a sexual encounter between a black, uh, non-white person and a white person is an is a is an act of rape. So. Um, Generally, uh, this kind of doesn't go into the context uh, within the system of white supremacy. So I kind of found that sentence real interesting. So um, that's all I have for now. I'll mute my line. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. That uh, to be reading a book 
Oh, there is our narrator, Mel. Yes, ma'am, we can hear you. No, I'm sorry, you can finish. I was just going to say, to be reading a book that is not about racism, that is not in the title of the book, that's not the subject of the book, this book talks a lot about racism. That's no, and I mean like directly. Uh, and then you actually, and I mean even if you think about it, it's almost every page talking about racism because he has so many examples of Nazi Germany. That certainly would have to qualify as white supremacy racism. And then George Jackson, and I mean it just goes on. It's a lot of focus on racism. And then two, you actually get a definition of racism. You have a lot of people who write books that are explicitly about racism, and they don't have a definition of racism. You actually get a definition. Fascinating. Our narrator, Mel, again, fantastic job. Thank you so much for your time, energy, and voice. Uh, proceed. Oh, um, so when the section uh, – first off, I agree with all of the previous callers' points, um, but I did miss – the beginning segment with the postman speaking, I think, about O.J. Simpson. So unfortunately, I can't comment on that right now. But um, in the section inflation and mystification, um, I think it's already been said, but I think white people um, inflate the word racist by calling black people racist, and I think they've also inflated other words. And I've had some, but I can't quite find them. Um, there was, a, I guess, hmm, so I think in this section, minding your minding, in the beginning, uh, I think using the medical example in minding your minding was a good one. It reminds me actually of a personal situation of someone I know, and I'll try to be brief, um, of a person who she basically put herself into a mental hospital because she thought it was what she needed at the time, but then when she got in there, the environment was different than what she thought it was going to be. So apparently she said she lied to the psychologist in order to pretend that she was all better and like get herself out. And one of the things that ended up happening in the hospital was that she found out that a lot of the people <clears throat> um, didn't really have mental issues that they were, like, born of, but instead had just really bad lifestyles and had developed mental issues, and that even while they're in the hospital, they have mental, like, the, the situations of their lifestyle still go on at home. So when they would be released from the hospital, they'd go back to that. Um, but because it was a hospital, it wasn't really the environment to fix their home lives, but instead to fix the people. So all the psychologists would repeat all day is that you have to change yourself. You can't change the world. And that part seemed really empowering. Like part of that seems really empowering. You can't change the world. You can, you can only change yourself. But then part of it seemed very disarming. Like it hypnotized the people in the hospital kind of into a state of weakness um, because they couldn't control their home environment. So to make a long story short, I think the example of a doctor putting uh, a context of schizophrenia on the people who went into the hospital was a good one to demonstrate the value of context and of framing and of labeling things yourself because it's like it's sort of a power that you, you really don't think you have until you don't have it, um, as in the case of the person I know. But um, I thought the question section was a good one. I like that he suggested that you ask yourself about your own biases. Um, and I think my overall impression of the book is that it's been very helpful in labeling a lot of things that happen in everyday conversation. Um, I'd like to briefly look back through the chapters to say like which one stuck out to me the most, but in terms of the suspected racism, I think Postman sort of, I mean, he, he does bring up race. It's like this strange ghost in the background all the time uh, that he uses constantly as an example in his own sort of way. 
but he kind of ignores white supremacy and, and accepted that one part where he's like, you know, you need to argue it to me. And then when he was talking about George Jackson, worse than he did Eichmann, it kind of demonstrates to me that he's operating in a white supremacist semantic environment. I mean, maybe that's just obvious, but I think, you know, where we ignore the system of white supremacy that dominates the majority of the planet. And so I think to some extent his context might be crazy, like his own semantic environment might be kind of crazy, but I guess all of ours would be because he's not just in it by himself. Well, well, I don't think so. Um, I have a few more notes. I might gather them back up. All right, on. Uh, we will see if she gathers them. If other folks have commentary they want to get in as we wrap up uh, Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk, the number is 641-715-3640 and the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you have commentary. Uh, took quite a few notes on the last portion here. And even I had to go back to last week uh, because the section on propaganda – where he mentions uh, George Jackson, who was in the Black Panther Party. We talked about that last week. I forgot the portion where he said on 173 he was talking about uh, how just impugning this article that was written about George Jackson after his death, where the article was saying that he uh, purchased this motorcycle, it turned out to be stolen, and he was incarcerated, and so he's impugning the way this passage was written. And he says, I believe this paragraph is one of the great – propagandistic passages of all time and is deserving of being included in the Joseph Goebbels casebook of famous boondoggles. That right there is an extraordinary, extraordinary metaphor (laughs) following the advice that he gave. I don't know if people know Joseph Goebbels, who that is. Dr. Welsing mentioned him regularly, uh, and he mentioned Joseph Goebbels regularly in the book. In fact, like I said, he lots of Nazi Germany uh, examples and people that he mentions throughout the text. But Joseph Goebbels uh, is infamous for doing Nazi propaganda and making all of these really uh, just revolting, hideous films uh, about quote-unquote Jews, black people, anyone that they deem to be non-white and worthy of uh, extermination. But he's credited with making all of this work uh, to just really galvanize the white supremacist energy that was needed to push along the Third Reich. But to say that this passage on George uh, Jackson, that this passage belongs in the Joseph Goebbels casebook of famous boondoggles. Wow. And, in my view, act of racism, white supremacy on Postman's part. But, yeah, I think Mel just said, like, the metaphors and the structuring, his use of language and illustrations uh, is just saturated with examples where he's picking explicit examples uh, of racism, white supremacy, Nazi Germany, and what have you. And then I think he's also practicing racism, white supremacy, and how it's, it's presented. Uh, going to what we read this week. And I actually have the book and the the scanned copy in front of me. Uh, I had, uh, let's see, the example with racist, where he starts out in saying that this is a word that is inflated. When he talked about sloganeering and he mentioned black people or or black people in the 60s and 70s protesting against racism, that you had a lot of sloganeering. Uh, And I think he used the term uh, power to the people. Uh, and saying that that's just an empty slogan. What does that mean? And some people thought it might be an example of racism. I agreed. I also thought that it was true, that you do have, you did then and you do now, have a lot of sloganeering where people just say things 
uh, as though that means something, as though there's some power to it. And a lot of times the phrase is not clearly defined. It doesn't really get uh, in an accurate way uh, to what the problem is, what we should be doing about it. It's just something cliche to say. Um, when he begins talking about racist being a word that's been inflated to the point that it doesn't mean anything, I had the same thought process. I think this could be an act of racism on Postman's part. This is the word I'm going to choose as the illustration of a word that's been inflated. And I also think it's true. Uh, and I think white people have and continue to do an extraordinary job uh, using and misusing that word racist. They won't say racism, white supremacy, racist, or other derivations, and then also not giving it a definition, which at least he does, uh, and then applying it in a myriad of incorrect ways. They'll say, uh, now it's, oh, if you don't like this person because they're transgender or LGBTQ, that's racist. I've seen a whole lot of reports where it's, this is filed as an act of racism, but it is someone who is white who identifies as gay or lesbian saying, oh, yeah, they mistreated me because of my sexual orientation or because I'm transgender. Racism is a huge problem. <laughs> like that right there. Inflation and it spreads confusion, in my view, deliberately. Uh, and even his definition of racism, in my view, let's look at it. For me, it's on page 222. He says, consider, for example, the word racist. My apologies, he didn't say racism. He said racist. There was a time when the word mostly referred to a person, not a white person, a person holding specific attitudes toward black people, in particular, that they are inferior to whites and that, therefore, it is best to keep the two races apart. In my view, that is not an accurate definition of racism, white supremacy, and you hear that nonsense all the time about keeping black people and white people apart. If that were the case, you would have never had that mythology about the boat ride. We're going to stay apart, right? That's not what this is at all. You would have never had uh, raping white enslavers, Thomas Jefferson at all. We're going to stay apart, right? That's not what this is. This is about power, domination, and terrorism, which I suspect Mr. Postman knows inaccurate definitions of racism, white supremacy. They're great at that sort of thing. I think the same thing Mr. Demery Force said when he gave his list, and again, this is one of those, the more you know about who these people are, the better your processing of Mr. Postman saying, oh, man, what does this word racism mean? This is just a bunch of hooey. You know, you're going to say that Yogi Berra is racist because he's playing a white guy over a black guy. You're going to say that uh, Pat Daniel Patrick Moynihan is racist, but he doesn't give any information about who he is or why he was called a racist. Some might say that that is eroding context so that you can understand why these accusations were made. In my view, whites do that a lot as well. Uh, Daniel Moynihan, he wrote the Moynihan Report. Uh, I think a lot of people basically sum this up by saying that black female moms were blamed. You got these single parent households. The black family is in tatters and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. A lot of people felt it was very uh, racist at the time. It still gets talked about uh, and referenced. I think Tana Hussey Coast uh, did a report on some of his other work as well. Uh, Henry Kissinger, we talked about him repeatedly in a number of our books this year. I think Gil Scott Heron uh, mentioned him. Coretta Scott King mentioned him both in their memoirs that we read earlier in the year. Certainly his involvement with the Vietnam War might qualify as an act of racism. I think he did a myriad of things where people might be accusing him. 
Same thing with uh, former President Richard Nixon. He did a myriad of things that people accused him of being uh, racist, uh, Cointel Pro included. Albert Shanker, this is a white man who was involved with the school system in New York City where people were accusing him of being racist, of doing things to foment racist attitudes against black people to the detriment of black students and black parents. Uh, who were in schools that had predominantly white teachers, uh, and people accused him of doing things to foment conflict uh, between those groups. No context, doesn't give any detail for why people thought that these folks were racist, just that, oh, man, you've accused all these white people. That doesn't get included either, identifying that you consistently have these white people being accused of being racist without a lot of details, just, man, we just throw this around as a snarl word. I don't even know what that means, a snarl word. It's synonymous with the sound, ugh. I'm not even sure how to process that. To me, when I think of the word snarl, I think of an animal, a dog snarls. That's what I think of. Uh, if someone is saying that a person snarled at me, it's some sort of savage animal response, like we're about to break out into some sort of primitive you know, fight or something. Uh, I think of animals. I mean, if, that to me uh, says quite a bit if Mr. Postman, if it's black people or anybody else making an accusation against a white person, that they're practicing racism, white supremacy, that that is synonymous with snarling or ugh. Hmm. Moving forward, uh, when he says, and I, I do think his concept of inflation, I think it's important, something to consider when he talks about the word friend. Absolutely. And I think you can substitute the word brother or sister. Just because a black person said that, that does not mean anything. What does that mean? That <laughs> we have some sort of codified allegiance to behave it doesn't mean anything when everybody is just throwing the word around brother 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 sister 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 in my view it's the same thing it means nothing it just takes all the significance uh, out of the word many people do not agree with which is cool in the game uh continuing uh the portion where he talks about mystification and professionals using all of these obscure terms to hide information. I thought that was hugely important. I think white people do that on a regular basis in a myriad of forms, whether it's in the doctor's office or when it's time to talk about racism, white supremacy. I think you have a lot. In fact, the thing that I thought most <laughs> primarily was the book we read last, France Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth. I said that right there, in my opinion, is a lot of mystification. I do not think that that is a presentation of information. And he said in the book, you have a lot of black people who have been uh, deliberately sabotaged from getting quality education. I do not think that that was a book that was written so that a typical black person could easily access the content. And I think that happens all the time when it's time to discuss racism, white supremacy, you get a lot of slogans, you get a lot of catchphrases, and you get a lot of people who mystification. Terms aren't defined. It's a lot of jargon, particularly white people. Big words, it doesn't make sense, white privilege and all this other such. And then when you start to ask questions, it's you are ignorant because you don't understand. No. If it's racism, white supremacy, you should be able to explain it so that a 10-year-old, a la justice, can understand. Uh, let's see. And he call, when he phrases it, Mr. Demersfor is, in my view, correct. When he says Postman is pretty clever with how he puts his uh, phrasings together. When he says 
Uh, such linguistic elitism can, however, have serious consequences in situations where it is necessary for the lady to know exactly what is going on. Racist white supremacists are excellent at keeping information from being easily understood. When five words could be used, we'll use a hundred buckets of words. Uh, continuing, let's see, the portion where he says, The portion at the end where he says, there's a difference between saying technical words and understanding them. Goeth once remarked that where understanding fails, a word comes to take its place, and that is as good a definition of stupid talk as I have ever heard. Thought that was great, one that I will uh, keep with me moving forward. Uh, the, the sentences or what he shared from chapter the Minding Your Mind chapter, I had read about this study before, the people pretending to get into the uh, psych ward saying they heard voices and what have you. Context, absolutely. I thought that was great. Um, I thought when he talked about putting the drop of coloring in the water, it colors the, the entire water. I think the same should be true when someone identifies as white, that that should color all of the information that they bring forward, whether it's constructive or not, but it should have the same impact in how we evaluate them. Uh, and should never be diminished regardless of what they do, regardless of what they say, regardless of what is accomplished as long as the system of white supremacy exists. Uh, let's see, when from the same chapter, I thought those are great examples, and I, I hope that some of this has been applied on the cows over the near decade that we've been broadcasting in terms of being aware of the semantic environment when you're talking and having conversation, especially if it's something that could be contentious, like racism or other things, where it could be an argument, could be a heated disagreement, paying attention, asking questions, paying attention to the types of words that are being used, types of metaphors that are being used, definitions that are being used. Really try to pay attention to that. Am I talking to another white person? Uh, exactly what is the nature of the disagreement that we're having? Where did it seem that the problem came up? Just trying to ask those types of questions and really paying attention just to the structure of the conversation. I think the more that you can kind of do that, and as he said, kind of you, you're participating in the conversation, you're talking, you're listening, but you're also kind of trying to step outside and also monitoring just the entire exchange uh, to see what's happening. I think that can be very helpful. I think it's something that it does take a little bit of practice, and, and you, obviously some days you're better than others, but I think wow, it can be very, very helpful uh, in just noticing tendencies, uh, term usage. Uh, it can be very – and even keeping you calm. I think that's one of the things he talked about here, that a lot of times conversation can be reflexive where you're just kind of following somebody says something and you're just waiting for your turn to talk rapid fire. And uh, I think if you're paying more attention to the exchange, the environment, the semantic environment of the dialogue, I think it can help a lot in terms of keeping you calm. You're paying more attention to what you say. It just, it can be a really beneficial tool that I hope has been demonstrated repeatedly on the cows context of white supremacy. Uh, do we have other folks who had commentary they wanted to Get in again uh, as we wrap up the book. Uh, Neil Postman's Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk. Any other comments folks wanted to share?
Oh, um, I'll be really quick. Uh, I found two of my other points. Um, in the section inflation and mysticism, I think he used the term word salad to talk about how the amount of like fancy words in the spiritual tennis lessons uh, were just like how they would justify the price of the tennis lessons. Um, it's just that price is justified and it's well served by the amount and the quality of the words that he uses. And I think that the idea of removing mysticism is a good one overall and that um, there should be, I guess, in, I, I think he said iatrogenic or eutrogenic uh, or translation of a lot of the things that we are to read. Contract came to my mind, probably a small point, but then on page 239, um, this might be a far off point, but he put up Shaw's example of both people who worship and people who desecrate a symbol both being idolaters. And I thought that was an interesting point. Uh, it's not Postman's point, but it's Postman, I think, quoting Shaw. And I think it reminds me of the desecration of the Emmett Till monument that I would keep hearing that like people had vandalized in, in the South. And though I'm sure it's been brought up on the show before, it makes me think that the people who have desecrated uh, Emmett Till's monument may in some way think of him as an idol in like a sick way or like a figure of their own. I mean, maybe I'm thinking too much into it, but I know that like historically people tend to have like war gods and like gods who held up the world like Atlas and they have all these interesting symbols that aren't just people they aspire to be, but things that they kind of don't aspire toward or something like that. And so I'm thinking that there are also certain rituals to appreciate their need for that God or that symbol that they have. And so I'm thinking that uh, basically I'm thinking that Emmett Till's monument to some people who might desecrate it, it represents kind of an obsession with it that um, apparently has its own ritual beside it. I mean, that's probably a little bit off the point. I'm sure that's been brought up before that like, you know, the damaging of black monuments is in and of itself a sort of weird ritual of white supremacy. That when he was just talking about the idols and, uh, people who worship and desecrate them, both being idolaters, it just, that kind of came to my mind. That's it. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Mr. Demryfor, were you going to share something as well? Uh, yes. I want to uh, give a real-life situation. that It didn't, I didn't purposely uh, do this, but I ended up as a uh, third party when we went to uh, consult a lawyer on some legal matters. And since I wasn't <clears throat> really part of the conversation, I was able to sit back and listen to him um, in the semantic uh, environment, the words he was using, and the metaphors. And he kept using the metaphor spit in the face three or four times <clears throat> and after it was over i asked the guy who was actually seeing my brother-in-law was seeing the lawyer did he pick up on those metaphors it, it went right over his head he never even heard that you know because the guy was making an illustration that this is before he realized that the brother-in-law was going to accept him as his lawyer but he wanted to make it seem as though it was so ridiculous that, you know, it would be an open and shut case. But then after he signed the agreement, he said, I have to tell you, there's no guarantee. You know, and I thought about all this uh, information that he gave and the way he talked before he signed the contract. 
you know, it all changed after he signed it. And it was just interesting the way that that played out. Uh, <clears throat> so that's one real-life situation that, uh, you know, if you understand these things and you're looking at certain things to happen, like I told him, I said, man, if you're looking to save uh, four or $5,000 by getting this lawyer, he knows this. And when he set his fee, I thought that it would be at least half his fee would be at least half and maybe three quarters of what he was supposed to say. But the guy surprised me and it was only a third. So, but I think that that's uh, a reasonable uh, fee for what lawyers charge at this time. So I'll mute my line on that. Metaphors, metaphors. Uh, while I'm checking to see if other folks have commentary, uh, I didn't even finish all of my notes. I took quite <clears throat> quite a few and it's a pretty limited uh, portion of text. Uh, I thought also this is from Minding Your Mind, the portion where he said, uh, as I've noted earlier in the matter of purposes, to me, for example, it seems clear that there is a distinct similarity in the actual purposes as opposed to the avowed purposes of such situations as a celebration of the Reverend Moon's Unification Church. Uh, or, and he gives a lot of other examples, <clears throat> that I think is often the purpose. Uh, I think this past weekend we had John Patash as a guest on the program for the third time. Uh, retired firefighter asked him what was his purpose for writing the books. And I think often with individuals classified as white, their stated purpose and the actual purpose, they might be different. The actual purpose frequently is going to be white supremacy, racism. Uh, might be some other things too, but the primary actual purpose, maintain, expand, refine, continuance forever system of white supremacy. Now, it might be, you know, stated purpose might be, you know, who knows. But uh, I think that's something to keep in mind. Also thought further on the pay 250 I thought this was really important, especially when people begin talking about racism, white supremacy. He said, semantic environments which are designed to suppress or bypass functions of the left hemisphere. We just talked about uh, the left brain uh, being the the side of your brain largely in capacity uh, with the ability to analyze and employ logic and apply principles, right? He says, uh, semantic environments which are designed to suppress or bypass the functions of the left hemisphere of the brain, even if they are disguised as therapies, are therefore highly suspect in my scheme of things and are likely to produce large quantities of crazy talk. I agree completely. It's been my experience a lot of times when we begin talking about racism, white supremacy, it will be a lot of slogans, regardless of who's talking, white person or a non-white person, often it will be a lot of slogans and appeals to emotion. White supremacy racism is something where you need logic, follow logic in talking about even being precise with word choice when you articulate about white supremacy racism. Uh, the whoo, illustration on the very next page, that's why I said sometimes it can be very challenging reading uh, text written by white authors because sometimes they will have very constructive information. I thought Mr. Postman has had a lot of constructive insight, but then you come on 251 and he says, 
Those who are quickest to call for a reordering of some social system, including its language, are usually those who are most insensible to how much they themselves depend on conventional rules and roles. Nothing could be more ridiculous, for example, than a person who accuses the police of brutality, calls for a people's army to replace them, and then is astonished at being smacked by a policeman's billy club. Another great illustration could be an example of uh, postmen practicing racism, white supremacy. I would suspect it would be a lot of black people at the time he wrote this book, 1976, and now, 2017, who are saying, man, police brutality is a problem. The way they're treating black people is terrible. Why on earth, if I said that, just saying, why on earth, if I say that, and even if I said, yeah, we should have a people's army to replace them, to stop all this, why should that warrant me being smacked by a belly-clubbed officer? Is that a crime to just say that, that the police are abusing us? I think they should be replaced. Maybe we shouldn't even have them. Why should I be subjected to violence? That sort of thing right there, just in that sort of illustration, it's just my view consistently. Sometimes it's real direct. Sometimes you'll get white people uh, just saying directly, uh, like when Trump said during the campaign speech back in my day, I think somebody was there heckling. He said back in my day, you know, we would have uh, thrown that guy out. We would have beat him up and thrown him out. Violence towards black people, some way, shape, or form, is always being encouraged, hinted at, joked about. In my view, this is, and I mean, it's layers of violence because if we're talking about police brutality, 1976, 2017, 1917, the people who seem to be reporting the most problems with police brutality and violence, it's black people in this area of the world. So that's the one level of the violence, and it's absurd and ridiculous if you're saying that that's wrong and advocating strategies for changing that, and you should be subjected to violence. You should be bopped with a nigger knocker for even saying such a thing. Continuing, uh, where he says, In summary, I am saying that crazy talk is characterized by patterns of thought which reveal an unwillingness to inquire, an exorbitant disdain for tradition, and a paralyzing fear of change. Uh, I am of the opinion the greatest form of crazy talk on the planet would have to be racism, white supremacy, uh, if that's you know what he's outlining here. Uh, it would have to be. Nobody produces more quote-unquote crazy talk than racist man, racist woman, racist child, and justifying billions of people on the planet being dominated, terrorized, and abused just because they're classified as non-white. And Postman's book almost proves that because most of his examples are about white supremacy racism. Uh, the portion in the very next paragraph where he says, Man, oh man, where he says, and one might say that crazy talk is a consequence of not knowing the difference as when, for example, the language of athletic competition is confused with the language of patriotism. My sense of my country's worth is not enlarged because an American rowing crew beats some Peruvians in the Olympics. And then when he goes up the next paragraph, I do not assume that, is, that it is – I do not assume that this – is what God wanted me and everyone else to do, and those who assume so are, according to me, talking crazy. I do not look to astrology to provide me with a basis for predicting the future. People who talk as if their religion were a political party and as if commerce were a religion, marriage, a court of law, a court of law, a sporting event, a sporting event, a form of patriotism, 
patriotism, a form of life, usually project a vision of reality that I find crazy. That paragraph, everything about what has transpired with Colin Kaepernick over the last, what is it, year and a half now, encroaching on two years slowly, how many times patriotism and this is the kind of disrespect crazy talk according to postman i would be very interested if he were still alive to hear what he had to say about all of this hand wringing and cursing at presidents and getting involved and what have you about uh, a game uh the last portion i don't know if folks uh, know who sisyphus is i feel like we've discussed him before in the book club uh but this is greek mythology white supremacy mythology of uh, him having to push the rock up the hill. That's his punishment for eternity, and it rolls back down at the end of every night. The portion where he says, uh, we can only keep pushing the rock armed with what William James called the feeblest force, force in nature, our capacity to reason. That did give me pause if we're supposed to be using logic, and if that is the feeblest force in nature, wow we. But it gave me pause. I remember Dr. Uh, Francis Cresswell's in Be Not Discouraged. Uh, we have amazing capacity. Uh, we just need to utilize our brain computer correctly. Uh, did we have any other folks who had uh, commentary they wanted to get in? Anybody? Anything else that we missed out on? Can I be Eric? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, real quickly, when you, uh, when you, when you mentioned the, uh, the uh, chapter on propaganda, uh, I think I remember – about a year ago, uh, we were reading Lopperstad's book, The Rising Tide of Color, and that was heavy with propaganda. And I will, and I'm thinking that it was had a lot of crazy talk in there as well. So uh, the propaganda for uh, white people to, you know, go into a panic that you know white supremacy is going to end real soon because, you know. Uh, the non-white people are taking over the planet, and 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 if I can remember, the way he the way he talked about the Japanese people as imperialists, like really tickled me when when we read that. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Absolutely, no one produces more crazy talk, quote unquote. I'm putting that in quotes every time as the way postman outlines crazy talk no one produces more crazy talk than whites and i thought that was very important distinction crazy talk being uh, collective psychosis not just an individual thing where it's got broad appeal and this is endorsed it seems to have a whole framework and, and an outline in terms of how we think about this and a value system connected to it nobody produces more quote-unquote crazy talk that is endorsed co-signed by thousands sometimes millions of other whites nobody produces more than racist man racist woman racist child uh, and it just comes out every day you can chalk it up in the news any any other comments folks want to get in Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, I just got one more point. I, I keep coming in. Um, but if, when you were talking about the point where he was, uh, I think it was on 251, where he talked about the police, like you can't complain against police brutality and then have a people's army, and then you get hit over the head with Billy Club and you complain, it made me think of France Fanon, actually. Um, because I, I, guess I just get the vibe that, like, I get the vibe that Postman like he keeps using revolution. I'm not saying like it's a swear word, but he keeps using it as in it, as if it is this negative thing that's just looming over the horizon. And 
it, it just makes me think like of how Fred Sanon handled the idea of revolution or even like Fred Hansen where, you know, you can't replace white capitalism with black capitalism. Like you can keep some things before your revolution and, and some things you, they have to go because you can't have a revolution. And I'm just thinking like, like just because Haiti overthrows like a depraved French slave owning rule doesn't mean they're getting rid of pants or like commerce or just because MLK is like protesting the bus doesn't mean he wants to walk. Like the way Postman talks about you can't complain about police brutality, it's like there's no – there's no middle ground. It's either you, you have a crazy people's army or you have police brutality and you don't complain. It's like there's – the way he talks about revolution, it's just – it's not very nuanced. It's just like this looming thing in the background, I get a feeling. And then also when you're talking about the Peruvian ball game, so I was reminded of – it's not what – I don't think it's exactly what Frances Cresswell-Sing said, but I'm reminded of how she talks about ball games. And how it's okay if non-white people win like little ball games as long as they don't, you know, genetically usurp like white supremacist rule or something like that. And to my knowledge, I'm not sure what they're considered at the time, but I know Peruvians today are brown people, so I'm not sure if that is applicable here, or I'm not sure if that's, I'm not sure if that's what Postman is thinking when he's saying that sentence. Like Peruvians, it's fine if they win like little ball games. Uh, that was it. Right on. Right on. Dr. Francis Cresswell in reference to game. I think that's the case. I think particularly anything that relates to uh, black people revolting, I, absolutely. I think even even though last week I think when he said that he had some sort of admiration for George Jackson, member of the Panthers, I think uh, several of us commented that that did not seem to ring true with the way that he talked about uh, the writings of, of the late George Jackson. Uh, any other folks have any other comments they wanted to get in as we wrap up. We'll be starting The Wisdom of Psychopaths next Friday. Kevin Dutton, uh, this book was mentioned by Dr. Rasayan uh, years ago. We were supposed to do it and just never got around to it somehow. But The Wisdom of Psychopaths, it's a newer book uh, written by a white man. Uh, looking forward to it. Audio book already exists. will be grand. Uh, other comments folks want to get in? Uh, yes, we'll be heard. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, <clears throat> when he was talking about the the experiment that Dr. Rosenhan did and uh, the pseudo-patients, you know, they assumed that um, the doctor, the patients, and the editors of the Science Museum were sane. But, you know, if, uh, he brought the point. If you think about it, who volunteers? to go into a mental institution. And then I'll go further. These had to be white patients because I don't know where you would find in an atmosphere uh, where uh, blacks have been used in experiments and medical apartheid. I don't see how you could get someone to say that they were insane and hearing voices and be locked inside of a, a mental institution. But then just assuming that they are saying, then when the patients go in there, even when they, you know, try to convince the people that's running the institute that they are saying, it only uh, confirms that they're insane. So if if he didn't really give them a way out, you know, I mean, he said it could go on, I guess, up to, so many weeks and probably a year. How long was he going to leave the people in there? What if someone wasn't released? You know, that means they would uh, 
uh, go longer and maybe even similar to a a prison sentence. So um, that experiment in itself, I don't see what it actually accomplished besides the fact that you can't tell the same person from an insane person. And from what I can see, it looked like the doctor and patients and everybody involved wasn't quite sane themselves. I'll mute my line. Thanks. Indeed. I was thinking the same thing on that. I think they said the average stay of the folks, the pseudo patients who volunteered in this study was 19 days, I think. Uh, that, man, if you are black, I mean, at this time, there's a whole book about this uh, protest psychosis where black people during this time period, 60s and 70s, they were being labeled schizophrenic just for same thing, saying, hey, I think police brutality is a problem. Maybe they should be substituted. It was not only should you be hit with a billy club, but you're crazy, and you need to be in a mental, mental institution, or you know, we need to medicate you or something, uh, because you're talking crazy running around here saying you know, gobbledygook like that. Um, so I could not imagine a black person saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to pretend to be crazy and hearing voices and go check myself into the asylum and see how long it takes me to get out. I'm like, uh, come on, man, like that man. Uh, yeah. There is the autobibliography, and I think some of these studies, they wouldn't even allow to be done anymore. The Stanley Milgram study where they were pretending to shock people and even this one with the experiment where you pretend to go to a mental institution, I don't think they would get approval to do some of these studies now, 2017 or forward. Uh, with the autobibliography, I reckon we could include just, I guess, if people are looking for other things to read, if you want additional thoughts. Like it's five pages, a little less than five pages, I reckon. Uh, and it's just a few books that he recommends. I suspect that these are all white authors. Uh, there are no pictures, but that would be my guess. Uh, I will. I guess I'll add that. Uh, Mel asked me beforehand, and I wasn't sure either <laughs> whether or not to include the autobibliography. But, I mean, it is there and it is short. So I'll add that in just for addendum. And then if folks have anything they need to get in before we wrap, uh, we will call it one since we finished the book. We've read the whole thing cover to cover. Uh, so the autobibliography, uh, the inclusion of a bibliography at the tail end of a book is one of the more benign pieces of stupid talk practiced by authors. The ritual only has one of two possible purposes, neither of which is usually accomplished. The avowed pur purpose is to provide a reader with additional sources of information about the subject of the book. But most times, so many books are cited and in such an undifferentiated and imperious way that the reader does not know where to begin or how and so wisely decides to ignore the whole matter. Of course, the actual purpose of the bibliography is to impress the reader with the extent of the author's learning. This, too, is often a waste of effort since the reader, having come to the end of the author's own book, has already decided if the author is a person of intellectual substance. If the decision is affirmative, then the bibliography is unnecessary. If negative, then the bibliography is insufficient. With all this in mind, I present below my autobibliography, a brief, highly personal commentary on nine books from which I have learned a great deal. I do not claim they are great books or seminal books 
or indispensable books, only that after I read them, I felt a lot smarter than before. I recommend them to, I recommend them to your attention. The first is Alfred Kozerbiski's Science and Sanity, the International Non-Aristotelian Library Publishing Company, 1933. This is, in fact, one of the worst books ever written. Hmm. The book is messy in every respect, and it is painfully obvious that many of the subjects discusses discussed were well beyond his range. It also, it is also impossible to read for more than five pages at a sitting, especially if you have tendencies toward migraine. If you think of a book as a container of answers, you will hate science and sanity. But if you think of a book as an instrument for the stimulation of thought, you should find Kozerbiski's Unforgettable. He addresses himself to questions of profound interest, at least to me, for example, what are, the, what are the characteristics of language which lead people into making false evaluations of the world around them? He also tries to say how we may avoid talking excessively crazy. Many academicians do not care for Kozabiskis in part because he is not careful and in part because they have no patience with genius. The second book is Mind, Self, and Society by George Herbert Mead. This, too, is a badly written book, repetitious and abstract. In fact, Mead did not even write the book. It was put together by students of his from notes made at Mead's lectures. Nonetheless, in my opinion, there does not exist anywhere a better description of how meanings are made and, therefore, of how communication becomes possible. Me, incidentally, was one of the founders of Social Psychology, American Variety, and it is from him that the concept of a semantic environment comes. The third book is a critique of the new commonplaces of Jacques Ellul. Ellul is a professor of history, of law, and social history at Bordeaux and is one of the world's best authorities on stupid and crazy talk. I got the idea for my book after reading Commonplaces, in which Alou analyzes more than 30 sonic slogans that are popularly and uncritically used by intellectuals and other varieties of gurus. One of them is, the main thing is to be sincere with yourself. Another is, cultivate your personality, be a person. If you think these slogans are good advice, you ought to read a lull to get a different perspective on them and almost anything, you, anything else you believe. The fourth book is The Collected Essays, Journalism, and Letters of George Orwell. Actually, almost anything by George Orwell has been valuable to me because he is the most clear-headed thinker I know. He is never tyrannized or even captivated by words and his analysis of the way people's minds become unsettled by nonsense are the best examples we have of crap detecting. My ambition in life is to grow up to be George Orwell. The fifth book is Wendell Johnson's People in Quandaries, which is a gentle, beautifully written, entirely intelligible popularization of Kozerbiski's ideas. I am tempted to say that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who will learn something from this book and those who will not. 
The best blessing I can give you is to wish that as you go through life, you should be surrounded by the former and neglected by the latter. The sixth book is Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. Alinsky made a distinguished career by helping people to organize themselves in order to further their own economic and political interests. His book is a tough-minded and accurate description of what people need to know about communication in order to achieve their purposes. Alinsky is almost never likable, but is so smart that he compels you to stay with him. The seventh book is Karl Popper's The Open Society and Its Enemies. Popper is a professor emeritus at the London School of Economics and a world authority on the philosophy and history of science. This book is scholarly and not recommended for casual summer reading, but it is the most brilliant discussion of the roots of fanaticism I know of. When I have depressing days weighed down by excessive exposure to crazy talk, it helps me to get through if I remind myself that Karl Popper is alive and thinking in England. The eighth book is I.A. Richards' Practical Criticism. This book appears on the surface to be about poetry and how people respond to it, but it, is, but it also puts forward a general theory of communication and identifies many of the faults and errors by which understanding is thwarted. Although Richards is not a good writer, he knows, in my opinion, more about the languaging process than anyone alive, and I have never failed to learn something important from any of his books. The ninth book is Gregory Batson's Steps to an Ecology of the Mind. This book is well-written and brilliant, but strange. Batson is no respecter of academic conventions and here allows himself to go wherever his ideas take him. He is, incidentally, the inventor of the double-blind theory of schizophrenia and a strong advocate of the idea that craziness is a product of a disordered communication pattern. Finally, at the risk of sounding pretentious, I want to mention that once a year I reread six writers who were devoted, each in his particular way, to the detection of humbug. They are Jonathan Swift, the previously mentioned Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, George Bernard Shaw, Alfred N. Whitehead, and Bertrand Russell. Like the rest of us, they are not without fault and are certainly guilty now and then of both stupid and crazy talk. But they have the great merit that they never doubted that men are capable of saying a few reasonable words each day. And that is the end of Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk, how we defeat ourselves by the way we talk and what to do about it. Couldn't get through the book without another reference to Thomas Jefferson, who absolutely did crank out a lot of crazy talk about black people and orangutans and all sorts of things. Notes on the state of Virginia. Uh, we are officially done, and next week we are moving on to the wisdom of psychopaths. Kevin Dutton. I suspect that would be an easier book to find. The author is an English person. I guess that would be, uh, again, us reading a book by a non, uh, a, an author who was born outside the United States. 
Uh, but that book, since it was published, I believe, in 2012, 2011, sometime within the last five years or so, I suspect you'll have a much easier time locating that book, uh, public library or wherever, uh, if you want a hard copy as we proceed. But that'll be next Friday. I'm excited to tell Dr. Rasayan we're reading his text. Uh, we'll definitely be here tomorrow for the compensatory call-in at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. We'll catch up on news observations from the last seven days. Uh, any Final comments, folks want to get on Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk before we uh, move off, call it a, a, a broadcast for this Friday. Assume everyone is grand. Uh, huge thanks again to Mel for reading uh, second time. I think that she's done some narration. She also read Asada Shakur's biography. Great, great job. I was glad uh, she was able to read it. Always enjoy hearing her uh, narration on the broadcast. Thanks to her partner as well. Did uh, the audio editing uh, for Gus T and Cal's listeners. Always great when uh, I do not have to do the narration and even can cut down and not have to do too much uh, audio editing as well. Uh, great job and hope people got something constructive from the text. Uh, and don't forget, Mr. Postman is still suspected of being a white supremacist, racist, constructive in information notwithstanding. Uh, with that, thanks for everyone tuning in, participating. I uh, hope you got something from the text, and we will be here tomorrow, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, as usual, you want to minimize stupid talk, crazy talk, one thing you can do, promote sobriety, practice and promote sobriety under the system of white supremacy. Uh, I think a lot of times people end up saying things that did, that does not make sense, saying things that they regret, uh, not being able to speak clearly as a result of being intoxicated. That right there would go a long way, I think, to minimizing conflict, particularly over the weekend if you're going to be out and about uh, doing whatever. I would encourage sobriety, uh, especially if you're going to be driving. You do not want to be stopped uh, as a driver, even as a passenger, and be under the influence. Uh, you never know when you might have to make life-saving decisions. Uh, race soldiers, they will be out and about, uh, and they are not going to pause just because you're having a good time. Uh, just keep that in mind. If you have to consume any intoxicants, I would say get to one spot and stay there. Uh, that way you can just be there overnight and leave the following day as a sober person and maybe minimize the likelihood of having something uh, unfortunate happen uh, while you maybe can't make the best decisions. No, Dr. Welsing, she was mentioned on the program, she would certainly encourage us being sober, taking excellent care of our brain computers and overall health so that we can produce solutions to the problems plaguing black people, those problems being racist man, racist woman, racist child. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time to replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.